Blessed are you, eternal our God, ruler of the universe, who has sanctified us with your commandments and commanded us to immerse ourselves in the words of Torah. Lord our God, make the words of your Torah pleasant in our mouth and in the mouth of your people, the house of Israel, so that we and our descendants and the descendants of your people, the house of Israel, may all know your name and study the Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, eternal our God, who teaches Torah to your people Israel. Okay. Uh, any questions from last week's discussion? Any leftovers that we need to cover? All right. Hearing none, one thing that I realized I need to go back and pick up that I've sort of omitted is just what are the names of the books of the Torah in Hebrew? Because this is a major issue in terms of uh, difference between the way in which uh, Jews and Christians uh, look at the scriptures. Uh, we are used to the terms, or you are used to the terms, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Okay, those come from Greek and Latin, okay, and have very specific meaning. But the way books are named in the Torah in Hebrew is after the first significant word that appears in them. After the first significant word that appears in them. So the first book of the Torah is called Bereshit, which is the first word of the Torah. Bereshit bara Elohim et ha-shamayim And Bereshit means in the beginning of. In the beginning of. Or with beginningness. Okay? In the beginning of. At the, at the head of. Because the word reshit has the same root as rosh, meaning head. Okay. Now, the second book of the Bible is Shemot, which means names. Names, because the Elu Shemot B'nai Yisrael. These are the names of the children of Israel who went down to Egypt. Okay. The name of the third book is Vayikra, which means, and he called. In other words, God called to Moses and Aaron from the tent of meeting. And that's very interesting because uh, in the Hebrew, this is one word which is written a little differently than it would normally appear because it ends with the letter Aleph, which is written very small in the Torah. So it's almost as if it's saying Vayikra. <laughs> okay. Numbers is named Bamidbar, which means in the wilderness. In the wilderness. It's the story of the wandering in the wilderness. Took Moses 40 years to guide the children of Israel through the wilderness. He was a man and wouldn't want to ask for directions. Some prophet, Golda Meir, said he picks the only country in the Middle East with no oil. 
And then the last word, last book <coughs> is called Devarim, which literally means words. These are the words that Moses spoke. Now, you might think the whole thing is a bunch of words, but... <coughs> and there is a certain element of difference. Genesis sort of implies, this is how it all got started, okay? Whereas Bereshit is sort of actually saying, well, this is sort of, yeah it's, yeah, it's how it all got started, but to a certain extent, there was something that came before. Okay, and what came before is indicated by the fact that the first letter of the Torah, the first letter of Bereshit, is the letter Bet, which is the second letter of the alphabet. Okay. In other words, it starts then with a question. Why didn't the Torah begin with the letter Aleph? Because Bereshit is not the beginning. It's the continuation of what went before. And what went before? Well, that's, that's a whole different story. Okay. Uh, again, Exodus, the way out. But the Hebrew book, Shemot, names, is a recurring theme throughout the Torah. Names are important. How many of you had a chance to read the piece by Lawrence Kushner that was on the handout that I gave you. How many of you brought your handouts with you? Do we have extras? Okay. I want to look at the second paragraph of this. Professor Susan Haldeman suggests that a primary difference between Judaism and Christianity springs from the divergent ways the rabbis and the Greeks read words. For the Greeks, and their classical Christian successors, words, like everything else in this world, are only imperfect representations of some higher reality. Therefore, for them, the goal is to bring what is truly real above down here below. In such a universe, the central religious act is incarnation, the word made real. For the rabbis, on the other hand, Hebrew word devar means thing as well as word. Words create, characterize, and sustain reality. How does God create the universe in Bereshit 1? How does God create the universe? Come on. He said, and God said, okay, Primary reality is linguistic. In fact, the first Lubavitcher Rebbe said, if you could see beneath the surface of phenomena, what you would see is the Hebrew letters of the alphabet continually issuing from the mouth of God. And the biblical word is not only a token of God's unending covenant love, it is also the real thing. For Jews, the central religious act is not incarnation, but interpretation. Interpretation. Jewish spirituality begins and finally ends with the words of Scripture. 
Michael Fishbane, professor of Bible at the University of Chicago, once suggested to me that through interpreting the Bible, Jews create themselves over and over. As Lawrence Kushner said in another place, Jews are not so much people of the book as the people of the interpretation of the book. And that's what I really want to get to is how do we read it? How do we interpret the words? And if words are important, names, shemot, are much more so. That's why throughout the Torah, very often, you find there is an explanation of the name when a person is named. Why is Yitzchak, Isaac, named Yitzchak? How did Isaac get his name? Come on, people. She laughed. Sarah laughed in the tent. Yitzchak means he'll laugh. It means laughter. Okay? And so this is very important. The idea is the name carries the very being of the one who is named. There's an intrinsic connection. Now, sometimes that can lead to some difficult situations, such as when I tell you that my name, Zeb, means wolf. But don't worry, I don't go out at every full moon and bay it. <laughs> okay? Vayikra is important instead of Leviticus sort of gets, oh, these are all the Levitical laws of purity and sacrifice and all that other kinds of stuff. There's a lot more than Levitical laws of purity and sacrifice and everything in Leviticus. Vayikra means the revelation did not stop at Sinai. Something continued. Because that opening vav links it to what went before. Okay? And he called. In other words, God continued to speak to Moses and Aaron, now out of the tent of meeting, instead of from the head of Sinai. Bamidbar, I mean, numbers, yeah, it starts with censuses. Okay? But that's not really the point of it. The point of the book is this is in the desert. What's interesting is the most joyous festival of the entire year in Judaism that we, you know, it took place just before we started this class was Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacle or Booths. And why are Jews supposed to eat and if possible sleep in a, in a booth with a sort of a halfway open roof? to remember the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. It is odd, of the three pilgrimage festivals, Pesach separate, uh, you know, um, commemorates the exodus from Egypt. Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, commemorates the giving of the Torah. Sukkot commemorates, celebrates, wandering in the desert, which may seem to be an odd sort of thing to celebrate. But that desert was important because it's where this motley collection of tribes who were constantly murmuring and rebelling against God were somehow formed into a nation. 
and then devarim, because Deuteronomy means second law. And again, it's nailing down, it's drilling down. The Greek word Deuteronomy drills down on the idea that the Torah is a law book, which it's not. But it's things, it's words, and therefore it's creative, fundamentally creative. What Moses was doing was not laying down the law. He was putting the finishing touches on crafting a nation. He was putting the finishing touches on crafting a nation. Okay, I just sort of had to cover that. I also wanted to quickly cover, before we actually got into the whole issue of interpretation, in a sense, how did we get to the Torah, this whole thing? And what I'd like to do is refer you to a place in Devarim. No, Devarim, not Deuteronomy. Okay. Ironically, the JPS Tanakh in my Kindle still calls it Deuteronomy in the book part. But we're looking at Devarim, Deuteronomy, chapter 26. Okay. And what I'd like us to do, if someone would be so kind as to read, uh, we're going to do verses 1 through 11. Someone like to volunteer to read. Okay, we have a volunteer. Was that voluntary or were you voluntold? Voluntold. Okay. I didn't feel like running. <laughs> Come on, Dan. When you have entered the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance and have taken possession of it and settled in it, take some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil of the land the Lord your God is giving you and put them in a basket. Then go to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name and say to the priest in office at the time, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the land the Lord swore to our forefathers to give us. The priest shall take the basket from your hands and set it down in front of the altar of the Lord your God. Then you shall declare before the Lord your God, my father was a wandering Armenian. Aramean. Aramean. And he went down into Egypt with a few people and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, putting us to hard labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil, and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror and with miraculous signs and wonders. He brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, O Lord, have given me. Place the basket before the Lord your God and bow down before him. And you and the Levites and the aliens among you shall rejoice in all the good things the Lord your God has given to you and your household. Okay. 
I want you to take especially a good look at that little quotation in verses 5 through 10. Okay? Verses 5 through 10, that thing that is recited. What is being said there? What is, what's, what, what is the person doing? Well, not remember, we're not in China now, not remembering the ancestors. What? Origins? Exactly, he's telling a story. He's telling a story. Okay? This is who we are. This is where we came from. It's an origin story. Modern scholars like to call this passage the historical credo of Israel. They don't have something like the Nicene or the Apostles' Creed. We don't do that. What we do is we tell stories. There is a very famous story. God went to the Greeks and said, I want to give you my Torah. If I do, what will you do for me? And the Greeks said, well, we're very great philosophers and scientists. So we will construct the most magnificent theology and the most magnificent science of your works and teach that to the world. And God said, very commendable. I will keep that in mind. Then God went to the Romans and said, I want to give you my Torah. What will you do for me in return? And the Romans said, well, we're not great philosophers or mathematicians like the Greeks, but I'll tell you one thing we are. We're great builders and engineers. So we will design and build these beautiful temples for you and a great road system that will enable the whole world to come and worship in them. And God says, that's very interesting. I will definitely keep that in mind. Then God went to the Jewish people and said, I want to give you my Torah. What will you do for me in return? They said, well, you know, we're not very good at philosophy, math, or science. We're not very good at engineering and building, but we're really great storytellers. And we will tell your story compellingly. And God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. The heart of the Torah is a narrative. And the core narrative is Yetziat Mitzrayim, the exodus from Egypt. The holidays are all commemorated in our liturgy as Zecher Litziat Mitzrayim, a memorial of the exodus from Egypt. Okay, even the Shabbat is given that interpretation. Why? Can a slave take a day off. No. So our freedom comes from the exodus from Egypt and that enables us to take a day off for God. Called Shabbat. Okay. So everything goes back to Yitziat Mitzrayim. Now, what that means is if you're going to really study Torah, in spite of the way, you know, in Orthodox you know, tradition, 
The first book that young children are given to study is Leviticus, is Vayikra. Why? You take pure minds and you teach them about pure things. But actually what I'd recommend is start with Shemot, start with Exodus. There's a wonderful book by Nahum Sarna. Where did I put my blue marker? I lost it. Well, this is the black one, but uh, this doesn't write well. What did, oh, there it is. It's hiding in plain sight. Nahum Sarna was the late dean of the School of Near Eastern and Judaic Studies at Brandeis University. He was one of my sister's professors, and she had classes from Nahum Sarna. And he wrote a book called Exploring Exodus. Okay, and this presents the book of Exodus as really, Shemot, is really the foundational text more than anything else. Because what takes place in the book of Shemot? You have several crucial events. You have the Exodus from Egypt. You have the covenant at Sinai and you had the construction of the tabernacle, okay? And the formation of Israel as a truly theocratic society where God and God alone is sovereign. Okay, so that's just a recommendation. Now, that was really the core story. Biblical scholars of a modernistic trends say that that historical credo is the oldest text that we've got in the Torah. But what I also want to point out is two other things about this. Number one, when was it recited? When was it recited? In what context? When a person recited this historical credo, what were they doing at the time? Bringing the first fruits and doing what with them? Offering them to God. Offering the first fruits of the land to God. In other words, story has a ritual context. Story is never told in a vacuum. It is always told in the context of ritual. This same passage, the, the historical credo, plays a very significant role in another ritual, which is probably the single fondest memory I have of growing up Jewish. Anybody care to guess what that might be? 
the Passover Seder. The vast bulk of the central portion of the Haggadah, which means telling, storytelling, is a detailed parsing of this passage. And you are supposed to basically spend all night talking about it. Okay, so this becomes, but again, you do that in the context of the ritual of the Passover Seder. Okay. And the second thing that I would like to point out is a very subtle piece that I want you to keep in mind. Where do you take the first fruits? But before you get to the altar, where do you take them? And Okay, go to the place, the place. And here we have a word that I want you to remember. The place. Ha-makom, the place. It's not specified here. Why? What? Ah, the Lord will identify it. But I want you to pay attention to this word. Ha-makom, the place. with a capital T-H-E. Hamakom. Okay? Because it's going to play a role in the passage we'll study from Bereshit. Okay? Now, if that is the core of the story, if that is the core of the Torah, basically what you're looking at is Shemot, Vayikra, and Bamidbar. Okay? Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers as the core. And you may ask, well, what about Genesis? Isn't that the first thing we study? Yeah, most Christians never get beyond Genesis when it comes to the Torah. They certainly never study Leviticus. Okay. I would be interested to see how many people would be in this room if I were teaching a course on Leviticus. <laughs> probably fewer than are here now, okay? Now, it was necessary in order to tell the story of Yitziat Mitzrayim, the exodus from Egypt, to add an introduction. And the introduction is found in, in chapters 12 and on of Bereshit, of Genesis, the story of which people, of whom, is told in those chapters. Surely you know this. Whose story is told there? What? 
Well, they weren't the Jewish people yet. As a matter of fact, do you know who was the first person to call the children of Israel a people? It was Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the first person to call the children of Israel a people, and that's in Shemot. No. Who is it a story about? What? Abraham and his family. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph and his brothers. Okay. In other words, how did we get to this situation where the children of Israel were in Egypt in the first place? Okay. These are Semites. They came from the Fertile Crescent. What are they doing down in Mitzrayim? By the way, you change the word, the verb, the vowels on Mitzrayim, keeping the same letters, and you get Meitzarim, which means narrow places. Okay? And actually, that's how the Hebrews gave it the name Mitzrayim, because it's the narrow strip of land on either side of the Nile in the middle of the desert. Okay. And then they also decided, well, as long as we're telling the story of the patriarchs, we've got some more stage setting to do. And therefore, you add on, you know, when an author composes a book, what they'll probably do is write the book, then look at the whole thing, write an introduction to it. Then they usually ask somebody else to do this if they want to pub- they get somebody who's really a big name in the, in the publishing world to do this for them. They add something else in front of the introduction, which gets later. What is that? The preface. Okay. Another way I would say, instead of introduction, call it the prologue. You have the prologue of the patriarchal narratives, and then you have the preface of what is called by scholars the primordial history. Bereshit 1 through 11, which sets the stage for the patriarchs and matriarchs. Let's not forget the matriarchs. You wouldn't have many patriarchs without matriarchs. Okay? And then finally, you have an epilogue. What's the epilogue of the Torah? It's Devarim, okay? That's the epilogue, where Moses stands up, and even though he has said he is a man of slow speech and few words, he proceeds to give them a lengthy discourse on the meaning of everything they've been through. That's the epilogue, and that's the whole structure of the Torah. You have a preface, Bereshit 1 through 11, You have the prologue, the patriarchal narratives of the rest of Bereshit. You have the core story of Shemot, Vayikra, and Bamidbar. And then you have the epilogue of Devorim. Okay. I think it's important to note that. And I think that's much more important than such topics as J, E, P, D, and all those other alphabet soup things. Not because I disbelieve the documentary hypothesis. I do. But I just don't think that's the most important thing to say it. Because in 444 BCE, when Ezra stood in front of the assembled Jewish people in Jerusalem, and opened, he didn't open J, E, P, or D. He opened the Torah. 
as it had been put together from all those sources. And that is the document that Israel and the Jewish people accepted as this is our divine teaching. This is who we are as a people. Okay, any questions at this point? All right. Well, he brought it from Babylon. But the people, you've got to realize, most of the people who were living in Judea were the peasants who the Babylonians never thought worth exiling, and a, a very mixed bag of people who decided to return when Cyrus the Great let them do that. Okay, uh, let them return. Okay. And so it was kind of a, a rather motley crew. And they didn't have the text of the Torah. Where the people were in charge, I mean, you've got to realize, that's why, you know, after the, let me put it this way. I keep backtracking. Good Jewish habit. Okay. Before the destruction of the temple, who were the leaders of the Jewish community? They fell into three groups. Okay. Kings, prophets, priests. Now, what happened with the destruction of the temple in the Babylonian exile? All these people lost their job. At that time, the religion of Israel and Judea had not been a text-centered faith. It was centered on certain institutions. The prophetic guilds, the, the, uh, the, king, the Davidic kingship, and the temple in Jerusalem. Now that's all gone. And the children of Israel are in exile in Babylon in a pagan society and a group of people who just do happen to be mo have been mostly priests said, we've got to do something to preserve our culture, our identity as a people, our reason for being. And these people emerged as a new class of people who first really appear in the historical descriptions of life in the exile. They are called the Sophirim, the scribes. Because at this point, it's important to write it down. At this point, it's important to write it down. Okay, and they were the ones who took all of the documents at their disposal and all of the traditions at their disposal and started putting it down and started editing and compiling. And it's out of this that the scribe priest Ezra brings this finished product, the Torah, to Jerusalem and unveils it before the people, and it's like the first time they've ever heard it. It's like the first time they've ever heard it. That's why this is such a crucial event. It's a very crucial event. Okay? Any other comments, questions before we move on? All right. If Jews are the people of the interpretation of the book, 
How did Jews interpret the book? Okay. At this point, I, I'm, I don't know whether all of you read the entire quotation from Lawrence Kushner. It's from the introduction to his book, God was in this place and I, I did not know. And by the way, both the complete title and its capitalization or lack thereof, it's God was in this place, God and place fully capitalized, and I, capital I, I, small I, did not know. And if that strikes you as a little bit odd, stay tuned, because it's going to be the basis of how we basically begin peeling apart. And one of the things that he says is that you can't just read the words. You have to read the spaces between the words and between the letters. You have to read the spaces between the lines. As Razai Spitzer, whom you'll be hearing from next week, said, you have to learn to read what isn't said as much as what is said. And that entire process is known as midrash. Okay, midrash. Probably one of the most important things that we'll come across. This is a word that is almost impossible to translate, okay? The root is darash, which means to search out. In other words, what is the text not saying that I really need to know to understand it? Let me figure that out. Let me search that out, okay? And probably the best one word definition for midrash, reinterpretation. It is a reinterpretation of the text. Now, why do you need to constantly reinterpret the text? Anybody want to? Venture, come on, why, do you, why, why would you need to reinterpret a text from time to time? Ah, cultures change, historical conditions change. Precisely, but the text doesn't. That's one of the problems. When you fix the center of your culture in a text, the text doesn't change, but the people and their social and historical and economic conditions do. And therefore, you need to find a way to make these things fit. You need to reinterpret the text. Now, let me cue you in on something. I've talked about the diciness around Jews of Christological interpretation of Hebrew scriptures. Guess what Christians were doing? They were doing Midrash. They were reinterpreting the text in light of their experience of Jesus. Okay? And there's nothing illegitimate about that as long as you know that that's what you're doing. Okay? As long as you know that that's what you're doing. So again, 
And one of the things, of course, is, well, the way I reinterpret the text may be very different from the way you reinterpret the text. There's an old joke, get two Jews together, you'll have three opinions. And there are collections of material called midrashot, which is the plural form. Interesting, midrash is a feminine word. And what they frequently are is an amazing set of arguments. Uh, years ago, a British theater producer named Ronald Eyre did a series for the BBC called The Long Search. I would love to find this. And in his, he did basically what it was is his search for the spiritual core of the world's religions. And so for Judaism, he of course went to Jerusalem, but one of the people he spoke to was Elie Wiesel. And he had done a whole lot during the program with visiting a Jewish house of studies where everybody, you know, if you've ever been to an Orthodox yeshiva, I spent three years in them, okay? If you approach the house of, the, the study room of a yeshiva, the level of sound will just absolutely almost drive you back because the room is filled with pairs or trios of students sitting with these lecterns like this, balanced precariously on their laps, looking at a text and arguing about what a particular passage means. And what they're arguing about is an argument, sometimes an argument about the argument. And it goes on and on and on. And so when you come and join and start studying in a yeshiva, you're plunging into the middle of an argument that's been going on for 2,000 years. Okay? And so, uh, Er asked Wiesel, when I think of Jews, I think of argument. Do Jews have silence? And Wiesel said, oh, but of course. But we don't talk about that. <laughs> okay. So Midrash, that's another way of looking at it, is Midrash is not a thing, it's a process. Remember, the Hebrew language and Aramaic, like all Semitic languages, are based on verbs. So Midrash is not, you know, it's not a book. It's, an, it's, it's a way of doing things. It's a way of processing things, words, Torah, okay? And there were primarily two styles or two basic, basic midrashot, types of midrash in uh, rabbinic times. The first was what is called midrash halacha. Midrash Halacha. Now, what this basically meant is it really gets to where the rubber hits the road because it's what, like you said, you know, ch things change, cultures change, societies change. In a sense, you can see it right in the Torah itself between where, in fact, the sabbatical year starts out in Shemot 
and other, uh, in the core, Shemot Vayikra, Bamidbar, as an agricultural process. Every seven years, you let the land lie fallow, and your land is open to anyone who wants to come in and take what they want. All of a sudden, in Devarim, you find a new twist. And that new twist is, it also affects money. In particular, debt. Every seven years, you're supposed to let all debts go. As long as they're unsecured, you got to let them go. Okay? In other words, what is taking place in that transition? You're going from a primarily agrarian barter society to a money society. And suddenly the needs change. And this happens over and over and over again. About this word halacha, the root is halach, which means walking. Halacha is walking. Okay, so what is halacha? It's not law. What is it? It's the walk. How do you walk the walk? Okay, the Torah is very nice as a text, but how do you walk the walk? And not just talk the talk. And another phrase that is sometimes heard is halacha lema'aseh. To do it. How do you walk the walk to do it? Okay. How do you walk the walk in order to do it? Okay. So this is absolutely important. And there are several collections of Midrash Halakha that are very important for the Jewish way of life. I don't, you don't need to learn all these terms, but there is Mechilta, which is a Midrash Halakha on Exodus. On, on Shemot. There is Sifra, which is a Midrash Halakha, on Vayikra, Leviticus. And then there is Sifri, which is a Midrash Halakha on Bamidbar and Devarim. What's missing? Genesis, yeah, Bereshit. There's no Midrash Halakha on Bereshit. Why? You get very few commandments there. Okay, there's not much in the way of commandment. You get, in fact, let me see if I can remember, approximately three commandments altogether. One is be fruitful and multiply, which, by the way, is incumbent upon men and not women. The second is to... Um, I guess they figure that women don't need to be commanded to be fruitful and multiply. I don't know, but at any rate, you know, otherwise men would just sit around the campfire and tell jokes. The second is uh, circumcision on the eighth day, and the third is not to eat the sinew of the thigh. And that's it as far as commandments in Bereshit go. There's no need for a Midrash Halakha on Bereshit. Okay, no need for that. 
So that's Midrash Halakha. But that's not all of Midrash. There is also Midrash Agadah. Midrash Agadah. In other words, reinterpreting through storytelling. Reinterpreting through storytelling. And this is where it gets very imaginative. It gets incredibly imaginative. And what it frequently is introduced by is a phrase, Le ma hadavar dome. What is this like? Does that phrase sound familiar to any of you? It's how Jesus introduced a lot of his parables. Okay, he was doing a very rabbinic thing when he taught in parables. And he tells a story. Now, it would be absolutely nonsense of you, after Jesus told the parable of the sower, to actually ask, well, do farmers really do that? Or that might not be a better example, but, you know, the king who gives a feast for his son's wedding. Which king? When did that happen? That's not the point. The point is, the story is making a point. Okay, You are trying to make a point by telling a story because it can't be expressed directly. It can't be expressed descriptively. It can only be alluded to. Okay? Okay, that's Midrash Agadah, and there's lots of stuff. Now, there are boundaries for how you can do this. On the one hand, the rabbis say, There are 70 faces to the Torah. In other words, what is the meaning of a particular passage in the Torah? Well, how many interpreters can you get in one room? How many interpreters have looked at it through history? That's the number of interpretations. Well, which one is right? As the rabbis always say, Elu ve'elu divrei Elohim chayim. These and those are both the words of the living God. The answer, who is right? Yes. <laughs> you remember again the scene from Fiddler on the Roof where Perchik comes to town and uh, one of the townspeople says, why should I crack my head over what the authorities are doing? You know, uh, you know, you know, it's, you know, what, you know what, I can't do anything about it. And then Tevye says, he's right. And then Perchik says, nonsense, you can't turn, you know, close your eyes to what's going on in the world. And Tevye says, he's right. And so another villager says, wait a minute, he's right and he's right. They both can't be right. He says, you know, you're right too. <laughs> okay. So, shivim panim, but there's an important control. It's hard to know how to write this down or live this up, but. Ein ha mikra yotzei mide pshuto. 
the text, Scripture does not depart from its straightforward sense. Scripture does not depart from its straightforward sense. In other words, in approaching any text of the Torah, the first thing you have to ask is, what is its peshat? What is its straightforward meaning? Okay? What's its straightforward meaning? Bottom line, what does the text say? And you can't reinterpret it in such a way that you get the text to unsay what it said. All right? You can't falsify the text. That gives you at least a little control. How are we doing? Oh, my God. All right. Later on, this will show up. Let me flip again. I always end up meeting more bored than there is. That's not erasing. There's something about that. That Greek is persistent. Okay. This later shows up in a phrase or a word, an acronym called pardes. Pardes, which means orchard, garden. It's the root of our word paradise, is pardes, okay? And it has four components. The pay, or P, stands for peshat. And that means straightforward, literally spread out. Okay, and that's the most basic meaning of the text, the Peshat. Okay. The second, the Resh, or R, stands for Remez. Which means hint. Now this is sometimes a little bit difficult to get a handle on. So, very often, this is what, where all translations of Torah fail. Uh, so, take a look at... It's in Bereshit 37. Bereshit 37. Genesis 37. It's uh, Jacob is sending Joseph to bring back a report about his brothers. Now, this is after Joseph has his dreams to get his brothers really ticked off. So, you know, this is one thing. Uh, so look at 37 verses 12. 
uh, through 17. 12 through 17. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are you not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. He answered, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring back to me, bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron. He came to Shechem, and a man found him wandering in the fields. The man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. The man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Okay, there's something missing from your text that's the key word I want to zero in on. They have gone from here. From here. Now, there's no way you would know this reading it in English. But the word for here, normally, that is used in Hebrew is pole. Pole. But the word here is zeh, which means this. In other words, to translate it literally, they have gone from this. This what? What does this point to? Okay, are we just talking about location or are we talking about something else? Another odd thing, he found an ish, a man found him wandering in the fields. Who gets ten generally introduced before they unveil themselves as an ish in Hebrew scriptures? Who is this ish? He's an angel. Usually, when an angel makes a first appearance, he's taken to be an ish, a human being. It's an angel appearing in human form. Halhumizet. Now, here's how Remez works. And this is going to be really a bit odd. The word zeh in Hebrew is Zion Hey. Now, every letter in the Hebrew alphabet has a numerical value. Zion is seven, Hey is five. What is 7 plus 5? 12. They have gone from 12. 12 what? 12 brothers together. In other words, this is an angel giving him a warning. Your brothers have already abandoned the idea that you're all brothers together. In a sense, he said, don't go. But Joseph does. Why? When his father says, I will send you to his brothers, he replies, Hineni, I am ready. Okay? Hineni, I am ready. He knew what was in store for him. He knew exactly. He went with open eyes 
knowing that out of the suffering he was going to go through would come redemption. Okay, that's an example of remez. We're almost out of time. The Dalad stands for Dirash. This is our old friend. It means to search out. Okay. And then lastly, Sod, meaning secret. Okay. Or the mystical meaning. This is Pardes. Now I'm going to have to stop here because we've run out of time. But what I want to do, next week Rabbi Spitzer here will be to talk about whatever he's going to talk about. Hopefully bring a Torah, show us a video on how parchment is made. It'll be a really fun thing. Take a break. What I'd like you to do is take both of the handouts out that are on your table, including what you have there is a fairly advanced midrashic and mystical commentary on this passage from a website called Maore Haesh, from Aish.com, okay, by Rabbi Ari Khan. And I want you in particular to pay attention to the word Hamakom. Remember I told you that was going to be an important word? Hamakom, the place. Okay? And we'll talk about it in two weeks. You've got two weeks to do your homework. Yes? Ah! Remember what I said about Torah Shebikhtav and Torah Sheba Alpeh, the written and the oral Torah? All of that Midrash gets built into what is called Oral Torah. Because it's part of the ongoing cultural dialogue of the Jewish people as to what the Torah means. All right. Shalom.